from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today we're going to have a real adventurer as a guest. Uh, His name is Chris Killam. And Chris Killam has been studying plant medicines for 50 years or more. He's written over a dozen books. Um, He's traveled the world. And, uh, you know, the very first guest uh, on, on Psychoactive, Andy Weil, says this about him. He says, Chris Killam is a trustworthy guide on the medicine trail, full of enthusiasm, wonder, and respect for the wisdom of traditional cultures. I respect his mission to make these plants and their uses better known in our culture. So in looking over the books that Chris has written, I mean, the one that struck me was one he wrote actually quite a while ago in the late 90s on kava. Kava, the plant medicine that uh, is growing commonly in the South Pacific. And I've been wanting to do an episode about kava. And so for a deep dive on kava and how it relates to other plant medicines, uh, I asked Chris Kellum to focus on that. So Chris, welcome so much to Psychoactive. Well, thanks, Ethan. It's a great pleasure to be on with you. I've been looking forward to this since you first suggested it, and I'm glad we're finally making this happen. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that, you know, you did this work in Kava going to, you know, one of the South Pacific Islands. Is it it Vanuatu? Is that how you pronounce it? Vanuatu is the name of the country. Vanuatu. It's a a group of about 100 islands islands uh, stretching north to south in the middle of the Pacific. So if you went to Australia and then you flew by jet, say, three hours east into the middle of the ocean, you'd drop down on Vanuatu. But yeah, it's in the middle of the South Pacific, and Vanuatu is where kava first originated. It Uh spread uh, from as far east as Tahiti and the Society Islands to all the way west to um, you know, Melanesia and and people of a more kind of Asian Pacific descent. But uh, kava really is the big psychoactive agent among all of the Pacific islands. Uh-huh. So that counts with Fiji and Samoa and maybe Hawaii. What else? Yeah, Tonga, the Marquesas, New Caledonia, you know, mm-hmm. sure, all of them. Um Kava has played an extremely important role in culture and uh, certainly nowhere more so than Vanuatu. So when I first decided to take a very deep dive into Kava, which I already knew about uh, in 1995, I went 
to Vanuatu and I, <laughs> through a series of strange encounters was told to go to a very, very, very far out outer island and look for a guy with tattooed legs. And <laughs> that led to a, a long friendship and ridiculously amazing adventures. And together with other people, we started the international kava trade. We, we actually did that. And uh -huh. uh, we were wonderfully successful in our efforts to popularize kava for a time. And that stimulated um, enterprise all over the Pacific Islands. And I got to spend a lot of time in Vanuatu and, and continue to this day. I, I was there in 2019, uh -huh. just a week before all travel stopped due to COVID. So uh -huh. it's, it's an activity and a connection that I keep up very closely. Well, so let's just get down to basics first. I mean, the first question we have to ask, since I imagine a good part of our audience will not know the answer, is what the hell is kava? Well, kava is a bush, Ethan. And... um. It is in the pepper family. Uh, it's a piper species. And it's the root and the lateral roots that come off of this large sort of football-shaped rootstock that are, are taken out of the ground and pounded, cleaned and pounded, and uh, made into a very, very strong drink that you drink out of coconut shells. You drink it fresh. It's not fermented. It's not alcoholic. And... If kava's properly made, you get a relaxing feeling in seconds. I don't mean minutes, I mean seconds. As it's going down your throat, you feel this wave of relaxation. And mm -hmm. so kava, it goes way, way back into antiquity with these different Pacific Island communities. And they all have traditions around kava and in vanuatu where i uh have spent you know the majority of my time though i've done a lot of work in hawaii um you know we drink kava in the evening it, it's pretty funny actually because you'll be out you know maybe uh somebody's working on their taro patch or whatever and somebody will say hey what time is it and somebody else says it's kava time man and uh -huh. they just stop in mid machete swing and they just walk back to the village and that starts the preparation of kava which is very physically uh demanding and labor intensive and This is an agent of kinship and community. It brings people together and you sit and talk about your day and, you know, hang out for a while. And after drinking a few coconut shells of kava, you go off and have dinner. But um, it's a don't miss. There's never, there's never a day that passes where there's no kava. It's central to kinship and community in the islands. Mm -hmm. Now, meanwhile, of course, kava has become, I'm not super popular, but it's spreading in popularity in the U.S. and Europe. I was just looking up, there must be a couple hundred kava bars around the country. So it's getting around. And why are people using it? Well, it it imparts a, a very specific feeling of relaxation and tranquility and very quickly. I mean, very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, just as, you know, one good solid hit from a, a great joint of amazing ganja will get you high momentarily. Mm -hmm. Um drinking well-made kava you will feel it almost instantaneously and people like the sense of tranquility that it promotes um you don't lose neuromuscular coordination you don't become drunk the way you would on alcohol you don't lose your sensibilities if you can remember your friend's phone numbers when you haven't drunk kava you can remember them when you have and um mm -hmm. it, it's really something that just plain makes people feel good and i think especially now considering that so many people are stressed out and anxious Kava is sort of an of-our-time agent of peace, really. You know, as one anthropologist said, you know, you cannot hate with kava in you. Uh, it's, it's an agent of dispute resolution. Let's say you and I have something going on between us, you know, whatever, you're pissed off at me, I'm pissed off at you, there's something wrong. We get together, we sit down, we drink kava, we just hang out for a while and do that. And then afterwards, we talk it through. And when we leave, it's done, it's finished, it's over, it's settled. Maybe I owe you a pig or something, but mm -hmm. it's over. 
And so it's an agent not only of kinship and community, bringing people together, uh, but it's also very useful for dispute resolution. Uh, you know, you want to honor a dignitary or a visiting chief, you throw a really wonderful kava celebration, or you bring a big, beautiful bundle of kava roots to a wedding, you know, to give to the bride and groom. All of these things show the the real central importance of this plant and its culture. I mean, people love kava and it makes them feel terrific. So the extension of that mm -hmm. to kava bars all over the US and Europe, it just makes sense. Although I really do, I do prefer mm -hmm. the island experience. I can, I can imagine. But, you know, a lot of what you're say, saying, Chris, it sounds like what I read and hear and learn about, say, coca um, in Bolivia and Peru and parts of Colombia, or what one might hear read about, you know, tobacco and more traditional uses in the Americas, or maybe cot in, uh, in Yemen and East Africa. You know, it's the same thing you hear about coca being given to the Pope or the Queen or the visiting president or what have you. So in terms of, I mean, how would you compare it to those sorts of things in that context? Quite similar? Well, if you have chewed coca leaf, you know this, you can't get high doing that. You can mm -hmm. try, you can mm -hmm. try with all your might, but you're not gonna get high on it. Um, you may feel a little bit more clear-minded. You may adjust to altitude better. Um, you know, feel kind of like you had a, a cup of tea, perhaps, but you're not gonna get uh, a different state of mind. If you drink good kava, I mean good kava. I don't mean the dishwater thin stuff that some people prepare from dried kava powder. But if you mm -hmm. really drink good kava, you feel it. You feel it significantly, and it lasts for a couple of hours. And uh, it isn't it isn't comparable to coke. I mean, I've chewed coca hundreds of times and drunk the tea many many times. You know, in the Andes especially, and um, certainly have you know been in out in and out of ceremonies where tobacco is uh, widely you know and specifically used. But they they don't compare to kava. The effects are just utterly different. And when you first have that kava wave that as it's going down your throat, you feel your entire body and nervous system just kind of just mm -hmm. spreading out through your entire body. You realize, oh, this is a different thing. It's not like anything. Mm -hmm. Now, so what was your first encounter with kava? Well, my very first encounter was at a dinner party in 1979 in a very elegant neighborhood called Fisher Hill in Brookline, Massachusetts. And I was in this baronial manor that this rich friend uh, had. And um, his brother was there. And after dinner, his brother took out this jar and stuck a chopstick in it and pulled out this big black ball of goo about the mm -hmm. size of a small marble. And he handed it to me and he said, try this. <laughs> and uh -huh. we were herbalists, you know, so we did the, like, you know, always, somebody would always be pulling an extract out of their pocket, like, hey, I just made an amazing, you know, whatever, uh, you know, ginger and bee pollen extract, try this or something. So, so I said, well, what is this? And he said, kava. And I said, okay, you know, what's it gonna do to me? And he said, you know, you'll feel it. And so I put this ball of black goo in my mouth and my tongue started to numb. And uh, in moments, I was pleasantly and delightfully high. Um, the light, which was low in the dining room where we were sitting, was had more sparkle to it. My hearing was more acute. Uh, I had this delightful sense of relaxation and peace. And I said, is this stuff legal? And he said, yeah, it's legal. And um, But it wasn't until... 1995 that I actually got to Vanuatu and began, you know, my my real serious path with it. But uh, after that uh, dinner party, I found the entity that had supplied him with that little jar of goo and got some myself and experimented with it over time. But when I finally went to Vanuatu, I was taken pretty promptly into a nakamal, which is a place where you drink kava. And I had a couple of shells of kava, and then I, then I got it. It was like, oh, right. 
Uh-huh. Okay, you can go very, very deep with this stuff. This is this is not some sort of like little light buzz that you get from a balagoo in your mouth. This is this is you know pretty much as deep as you want to go, frankly. And so that uh, turned me on to kava, and I, I think that we are certainly in my case, I'm drawn to certain plants. I'm drawn to ashwagandha, I'm drawn to the ayahuasca plants, I'm drawn to kava, to coffee in a huge way. I've researched coffee all over the world. Maca, um, you know, rhodiola, many other plants have really pulled me in in a big way. And kava is certainly very, very high on that list. And why did it take so long? I mean, why the 15 or 16 years before the first time you tried it and you're going to Vanuatu? I mean, what, what, what prompted that visit in 95? Well, it was actually hard to, uh, for me to find out as much about kava as I wanted to. I only got a little bits of information here and there, and I was not familiar at the time with some of the better botanical libraries where I could have gotten much more, frankly. I could have gotten good anthropological information on kava, but I didn't know where to go. And then in 95, I was basically hired by a couple who had purchased a massive botanical extraction facility in New Jersey, gigantic, largest in in North America. And they hired me because they they wanted to know what to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I said, I think you should develop kava. And they said, well, what do we need to do to do that? And I said, you send me to the South Pacific. And they said, okay, when can you start? And I said, like now. And they said, great. And that began uh, actually a 21-year engagement uh, in which I have investigated medicinal plants and food crops and spices all over the globe uh, and, you know, and, and it really um, threw me into what I wanted to do mostly, which was be an explorer, help to develop sustainable chains of trade, make a difference with indigenous native people, and in the process, have remarkable and extraordinary experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, you describe at one point Kava as the main religion of the Melanesian people. Is it, in fact, I mean, akin to a religion the way we think about it? Well, it's not akin to a religion in that there's no dogma and there's no central person, you know? There's Mm -hmm. no, oh, follow the teachings of St. Kava. You know, (laughs) that's not happening. But what does happen is a type of behavior, a type of listening, a type of consideration that is engendered by drinking kava with others. I mean, I've sat in um, a couple of times in these magnificent kava ceremonies with like a whole crowded nakamal, just full of chiefs, you know, and everybody getting called up in turn and drinking this insanely strong kava they call stone kava, which is minced with a, a coral head so that you rupture every last cell of this really fibrous kava root, giving every little bit of the relaxing compounds out there and into the water. And, um, you know, it's magical. It's just plain magical, breathtakingly so. And then you go out underneath the stars or you know, in, in case of my so-called home village, staring across the bay at a live volcano that's lighting up the sky purple and orange and gold, and you just stand there and it's breathtaking and, and you get a sense of the, the absolute tininess of us and the absolute gigantic nature of everything else. Mm-hmm. When it was it that Westerners first encountered Kava? I think Captain Cook was one of the first to encounter it, and he found the habit disgusting and didn't want it to take place on his boat. Um, And that did not endear him to island people for whom Kava is the central most uh, esteemed artifact in their culture. But in general, I think the fact is that European invaders did not understand, mostly didn't care to understand, and found alarming 
almost everything about Native people, you know, the basics of how they lived, what they did and didn't seem to know, uh, how they mm-hmm. behaved, what they ate, how they ate, what they drank, how they drank. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a disgust and a loathing that went out in all directions. And eventually, of course, Captain Cook was killed because he was just plain an idiot and he, and he you know, had no consideration for the Native people and he suffered terribly as a result. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. You describe in the book the role of the missionaries showing up in the 18th and ni- late 18th and 19th centuries. And, you know, as Captain Cook's crew did sort of down on the whole Kava tradition. And just say a little more about that role of the missionaries and, you know, what they did around Kava. Well, missionaries, as they went through the various Pacific islands, uh, tried their best to get um you know, native people to stop being heathens and to become good Christians. And so that meant, of course, you know, learning Christian doctrine and following certain prescribed roles, including, of course, tithing, you know, giving resources that they didn't have to people they didn't know for purposes they'd never find out about um, as somehow part of their salvation plan. And it's really a big con job from beginning to end. Um, In some cases, in many cases, the missions, though, at the very same time provided education and medicine. It's a very confusing mixture of elements you know if you want to seduce people and dissuade them from their traditional path and their traditional knowledge then you have to offer them something you can't just sort of walk around with a stick and demand that they change their ways and so you know they showed up with trinkets and education that is useful for sure and medicine that is valuable and other things and uh in the islands to one extent or another, greatly depending on the denomination that they represented. Um, They either tried outright to ban kava or to somehow modify it. The Catholics were kind of the smartest of all because their approach was sort of like what they did in Mexico, you know, with the, yeah, 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 you know, day of the dead's fine, no problem, no problem, but you know, here's how you need to worship and here's what you need to do. And I think with uh, Kava, certainly in Vanuatu, um, to the extent, I mean, to the greatest extent, it wound up being a better preserved Kava culture uh, than, let's say, in Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Tahiti, um, and, and continued to flourish. There wasn't the same attempt 
to ban it outright. And, and any attempts that did start were quickly just eliminated. Um, and so how the Catholic missionaries really got a, a hold in Vanuatu was by saying, yeah, 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 you know, drink your cob every evening. Sure, that's fine. Blah, 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 blah. But do this as well. Mm -hmm. Be good Catholics this way. So lots of different influences because, you know, everybody's got their own idea of what, of what religion is, and every Christian missionary has their own idea of what they're actually representing. So it's a largely confused, ham-fisted affair out there. Right. Well, you make me think on the one hand of some of the Catholic missionaries, you know, seeking to ban, in fact, banning coca in Latin America and punishing people for coca chewing. And on the other hand, I think about the Protestant missionaries and figures who played a big role in sort of banning the opium control uh, monopolies in Philippines and elsewhere at a later point. So, you know, and I guess a similar role is played oftentimes by some of these missionaries in colonial governments in Africa vis-a-vis -vis traditional alcohol use. So it's a fairly global phenomenon, but they actually do ban it, right? I mean, in some of these islands and they punish people for using it? They have in different islands for a time, yes. On the other hand, there's a wonderful photograph of uh, uh, Pope John Paul II drinking kava in Vanuatu, mm -hmm. um, you know, and yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the denomination, it depends mm -hmm. on the missionaries, it depends on how zealous and out of touch with reality they are. I mean, you have to be out of touch with reality to go to indigenous native people who've lived a certain way for a long, 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 long time and tell them that they're completely out to lunch in their approach to their very mortal existence and they ought to be worshipping some guy they never met before or previously never heard about and start giving money money to these people who they also never heard and never never heard of before and never heard about oh and stop doing all the stuff you love that's a big pill to swallow right right you know i'll say if that tahitian prince you mentioned earlier paya was maybe the most fascinating contemporary character the most fascinating historical one was this fellow you write about named john frum yeah john frum is a legend um He's a cargo cult messiah. The deal is, you know, cargo ships travel all around the world, right? And they constantly lose cargo. And cargo cults have evolved and developed around found cargo. And John Frum was supposedly this very tall, dignified, mysterious black man in a white suit who showed up and would demand that they like kill and roast a chicken for him and just this mysterious character overall and he promised great riches and there are actually some people uh, I don't know if there are any more but up until certainly the 80s who were waiting around for John Frum to come back um, you know sometimes what happens is there's a person you know um, and over time, that person becomes a legend, and then that legend becomes a magical person. And then the, you know, the who they are, the what they do, the how they do it all gets greatly exaggerated. And you've got something like John Frum. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know the, the real, the earliest possible beginnings of this. But yeah, he's a legendary character who brings riches through lost cargo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so, Chris, now to bring this up to basically the late, you know, end of the last century and the current century. So, when you come back from Vanuatu and you're and you're, you know, you're being hired by this company that's interested in taking plant medicines and making them more widely available, um, you know, for commercial purposes um, and health benefit purposes. Um, so, what happens? Then I mean, I know there's a period when it starts to spread, and then there's a scare over the feared uh, toxicity to people's livers of consuming it, I don't know, in, in great amounts or in combination with other things, and that seems to... Just tell us that, what, that general story globally, as well as your role in it. Well, when I came back from uh, Vanuatu in 95... Um, the company that had hired me, Pure World, promptly started to develop a kava extract. And within a year's time, uh, we had a, a really remarkable, profoundly effective kava extract that could be either a, a liquid or a powder. And um, then that jump-started real imports from Vanuatu. 
And, you know, when you do something like this, you realize you've got people in native villages in far-flung islands all over the place. Maybe they got boats, maybe they don't. Maybe they're hiking from one village to another on foot all the time. Um, and, and there are many, many hundreds of thousands of tons of kava in the ground all over these islands. But how do you move some of that, um, you know, and uh, get all the things you need, like phytosanitary certificates, you know, for shipping and clearance from FDA and, you know, all the right import licenses. And, and all of that stuff is behind pretty much every herb that exists. You know, if you're bringing ashwagandha in from India or rhodiola from China or, you know, kava from Vanuatu, you have to set up a whole infrastructure. So we had to do that. We had to do all of that, um, you know, working together with people all over the islands and in the United States and shippers and all of that. And um, we got a good, good, good business going for about 10 years. And then... Um, the, the the toxicity thing was was very very sad because it was complete bullshit from beginning to end and none of it was true. Uh, oh, that really? Was the part zero really zero percent true. It's not even a matter that people consuming in large amounts or in interactions with other drugs. There was there's really nothing to it. You could uh, not begin to take enough supplementary kava to approach at any time what the natives drink every single night of their lives. If if it were bad for you, they'd all be dead. Mm -hmm. um, they'll drink um, the equivalent of 10, 15, 20 times the most you could possibly consume in a supplementary manner every single night. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I mean, the, the story to that is classic politics on an ABC television special that I helped to land about Kava back in the early days. Um, right after we'd gotten this huge feature in the Wall Street Journal and everybody wanted to know about Kava, um, the director of the National Institutes of Mental Health, having reviewed several European Kava studies on anxiety, said, if we have American studies that show these same results, we'll have no choice but to recommend Kava. And for the pharmaceutical entities who were selling benzodiazepine drugs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of all different kinds, Xanax, Cirax, Halcyon, you know, the works, that was the most terrifying thing that guy could ever have said. And one week before the release of the publication of the Duke University Medical Center study showing that Kava, quote, is, proves every bit as effective in the treatment of mild to moderate anxiety as benzodiazepine class of drugs. And One this, week you say before proof, you that, mean controlled double-blind studies basically showing that Kava was as good or double better blind, than the other controlled human The whole thing. Yeah, double-blind, yep. placebo-controlled human clinical studies conducted at Duke University Medical Center. Exactly mm -hmm. what the director of the Institute, you know, National Institutes of Mental Health had been talking about. One week before that came out, all of a sudden overnight, something nobody had ever heard about, 21 cases of uh, kava-related liver toxicity. And it tanked kava overnight. And what happened from that time was that several groups of medical researchers and specialists went through that report and discovered that of the 21 cases, 20 of them could be summarily explained away uh, it was people using benzodiazepines and a lot of alcohol, and then subsequently also taking some kava. And one woman who was anomalous that they don't know anything about her previous liver history. But basically, the job that was intended to be done to just blow kava out of the water, it worked. And insurance companies wouldn't insure uh, companies for having kava anymore. And, you know, there were some class action suits and all the usual ambulance chasing. And that gravely, gravely damaged the kava market. And that gravely damaged the income of indigenous people all over the Pacific and, Islands. And you're talking about the period roughly 
the first decade of the 2000s, like 2002 to 2006, 7, 8. I mean, it was not just in the U.S., right? I mean, you had, I think, Germany and, and Switzerland, the U.K., France, you know, all banning it for a while. Is that right? Right, because of this one study that wasn't mm -hmm. a study. Correct. Yeah. Chris, I'll tell you, it's reminding me, we did an episode a little while back about uh, Kratom, Kratom, or what they call in Southeast Asia, Kratom, yep. and a mm -hmm. very similar yep. thing where a study comes out saying 40 fatalities or whatever, and then when people start digging, it turns out that every or virtually every c claim is bogus. Uh, you know, knocking out some product that seems to have real promise coming in both cases. I mean, from, you know, another part of the world, you know, either Southeast Asia and in your case, South Pacific. You know, it's like the, it's like when the New York Times put out a study, what, 40, 50 years ago, you know, front page that LSD splits your chromosomes. And then I think of how many people I knew yeah. were in the middle of an LSD trip and they started freaking out that their kids were going to be born deformed because their chromosomes were going to be split. And it turned out to be totally bogus. But it's those kind of scare yeah, stories yeah, that get yeah. so well publicized. Yeah. Well, in in the case of protecting at that time a twenty billion dollar uh, pharma sector, uh, the benzodiazepine drugs for anxiety, it was a matter of self preservation for whoever you know whoever was hired to do this. It was a hit job, and. Yeah, I mean, I remember very well when it was, you know, LSD would damage your chromosomes. So let me ask you this. Why do you think kava did not take off until you showed up, given the beneficial well, properties associated with it? For one thing, kava doesn't taste good, okay? Nobody mm -hmm. drinks kava and goes, God, that's delicious kava. Whereas you might have an enchanting cup of coffee and mm -hmm. just go, wow, this is a beautiful cup of coffee. I mean, the different agents you described are very, very different one from another. Coffee is something you can have any day uh, unless you're caffeine intolerant. It is fragrant and delicious if it's well-made. And kava, still, nobody really set up an infrastructure for kava trade until the 90s. Uh, but in addition to that, it doesn't taste good. You know, and the more you drink it, the worse it tastes. So, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, like you, you have a couple of uh, shells of kava your first time, you go, wow, this is great stuff. And I tell you what, by the third or fourth night, you're just going, God, I hate the smell of this stuff. Oh, it, really? it really does not enchant you. I don't know any native guys who love the taste of kava. None of them. Not uh -huh. one. When you think of the overall properties of something, like you think of cannabis, okay? Um, for most people, and not for all people, if you consume cannabis in some manner, you're going to get this delightful or pleasant euphoric sense. It's going to feed your endocannabinoid system in hundreds of different ways that we know are valuable for harmonizing organ systems between each other. Uh, it's going to do all kinds of intrinsically good things. And the fragrance of it and hopefully the flavor of it, if it's cured right, will make it something that you're happy to go back to again and again. Um, kava, you know, it's a tougher it's a tougher fight. I don't expect kava ever to be huge. I just don't think that'll happen. And I think that kava's chance to play a significant role in um, the relief of mild to moderate anxiety was very, very badly damaged by that study. And, and I do think that kava will continue to slowly creep on back somewhat, but I don't think we'll ever see the very, very high popularity of it that we saw initially. And, and part of that is due to the flavor barrier for sure. Mm -hmm. So in all these kava bars, I mean, these couple hundred kava bars around the U.S. and I guess a whole bunch around the world, I mean, are people kind of holding their nose and like, you know, kind of grimacing as they drink this stuff? Or are there are flavors being added or are people consuming it in ways which remove the offensive elements of smell and taste? Well, you can't remove the offensive elements of smell and taste. You can mask them. Mm -hmm. You know, you can put kava into, say, a coconut pineapple drink, as some places do, and that will make it more tolerable. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, at the good kava bars like Kanaka Kava and Kailua on the big island of Hawaii, you know, they get a great big kava bowl there and they just keep stirring it and stirring it and they fill up a coconut shell and you drink it. And yeah, it's full on, boy, this isn't delicious kava. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. You know, there are people out there who will drink Jägermeister. Now, Jägermeister is one of the most offensive, nasty-tasting boozes on the market, okay? And yet, you have people who favor it, who gravitate toward it, who have Jägermeister parties, who drink a lot of it, and go figure. Or look at Red Bull. I mean, Red Bull is just plain nasty. It's not good tasting at all. Uh, They make no pretense of it being good tasting. Hmm. People get a buzz and a lift from it, and it doesn't stop them from using well over a billion dollars worth a year. So, uh, you know, it's an odd thing about flavor and all of the organoleptic properties of these things. I mean, tobacco fundamentally tastes just horrifyingly bad, Mm -hmm. and yet because it it does what it does in terms of, you know, suppressing uh, certain emotional sensitivities. It's highly desirable among a lot of people. And you're right. It has a, a, a major central role in the Americas as a sacred medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in ayahuasca ceremonies, and, and I've sat in about 135 ceremonies in the Amazon, uh, there's always tobacco, always Uh, Usually the shamans are smoking mapacho, which is the Amazonian broadleaf tobacco, which contains 20 to 24 times the nicotine of the Virginian tobacco that, you know, gets used to make cigarettes here in the U.S. And um, sometimes they'll do what's called a soplar. They'll they'll sit down in front of you and they'll take a, a mapacho, a, a cigarette made of this Amazonian tobacco, and they'll blow it at your face and they'll mm-hmm. blow it on the top of your head and down the back of your shirt and into the palms of your hands, on the soles of your feet. You know, this whole ritualized thing. And I have to say, Ethan, that even though I hate the smell of tobacco, and I don't want to be around people smoking cigarettes. With something like a soplar, I find it amazingly enjoyable and very much in keeping with what I want to have happen during an ayahuasca ceremony. So it's that's interesting to me because I really don't like tobacco at all. I've done the tobacco snuffs thing, and that just made me puke and crap my brains out, and I don't want anything more to do with that. Um, but people react differently. There's a tobacco preparation called ambil, and it's this, you cook the tobacco down until you have this black tar, and uh, you just put it your fingertip just a touch into the ambil and you put it on your tongue and in pretty short order you're very high and i've done that ambil in ceremony and that was pretty pleasant actually um but you know tobacco is extremely toxic extremely mm-hmm. so if you were to take a cigar and put it in a glass of water and leave it overnight and then in the morning drink the glass of water you'd be dead in about a half an hour Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 
So let me just read a paragraph from your book that you wrote 25 years ago and see, would you, would you correct any of this or not? But you basically say, you know, here's the recap of what we know about kava's pharmacological activity. The nature of the effects that kava produces depends on the variety of kava plant being used, the age of the plant, and the rage, ratio of cavalactones, I guess the key ingredient found in that type. The potency of the kava preparation, whether it is consumed on a full or empty stomach, the set and the setting of the user will all influence the actual effects each user will experience. First and foremost, it's a local anesthetic with potency similar to that of cocaine and procaine. It numbs the tongue and the throat when drunk in its traditional form or when taken orally as a liquid extract. It's a first-rate sedative, producing a state of calm and promoting sleep if taken in sufficient quantity. Kava is an excellent analgesic, but its mode of activity is a pain relief has yet to be determined. It's superior to aspirin in its analgesic effects and less potent than morphine. Kava is an excellent muscle relaxant and can make the pain of an aching back, a sore neck, or any other cramped, sore, or injured muscle disappear. As an aid in the relief of both cystitis and gonorrhea, kava appears to be beneficial, though the exact mechanism for this action is not yet fully understood. Some researchers believe that this action is due to kava's antifungal activity. The cavalactones have demonstrated significant antifungal activity against some human pathogens. Unfortunately, kava appears to have no effect on candida albicans yeast. Got no idea what that is. It also possesses anticonvulsant properties. Promising studies with epileptics show that kava enhances control over grand mal seizures. While kava produces no side effects when taken in moderate doses, its abuse can admittedly lead to health problems. There was one study in the late 80s among aboriginals showing excessive consumption leading to deteriorating health. So would you stick by all of that, add to it, does take away any of that? Well, no, I would stand by that. The only thing I would add, but I do think that I cover that otherwise in the book, is that, you know, in the right set, in the right setting, I mean, this is a wonderful thing. You know, I, I taught ethnobotany at the University of Massachusetts for 14 years, and uh, every semester we would have a class where we would make kava. And I had kava shipped in uh, from Hawaii. I'd have it shipped in fresh. And, uh, or, or I also had some freeze-dried kava that was not commercially available. And we would go out outside, the students in my class and I, we would sit around and we would make kava and we would drink kava. And we would do it as close to island style as you could on the grass outside of an engineering building on a college campus on a sunny day. And the students loved it. They just loved it. They loved everything about it, the feeling of it, the fact that they were you know, able to consume this plant and feel it right away. They enjoyed it very much. Nobody ever had a bad time. Um, you know, some plants just confer more delightful properties than others. And kava's one of those. Okay, so Chris, so so now we've been talking. So our listeners are hearing this and going, wow, this could help with anxiety. It's already been demonstrated. It appears to help with sleep, right? It relaxes you, makes you feel kind of tranquil, but your mind stays clear. Uh, it can be kind of fun. So what's your recommendation? And please get as specific as you feel comfortable doing so in terms of how and where people should be getting this. You know, what form should be they consuming it in? What are the, sure. the brands? Sure. to the websites that you'd recommend? Uh, what are the dosages? What can you tell us? Well, okay. I think that two companies who are doing kava right out there are both making liquid extracts. Uh, one is Gaia and one is Herb Farm, and that's P-H-A-R-M. And they're both very fine brands. They're both using Vanuatu kava. They're both doing a good job. If you want to have the kava experience that is of that wave of relaxation um you know that that really feeling the kava then those are two good ways to do it because you can try um you know as much as you want until you get that relaxing feeling uh, what i would do with something like the gaia or the herb farm um uh, extracts is is take a little uh paper dixie cup a little one and put about an ounce of water in the bottom of it squirt in two full droppers full of the kava extract and drink it on the spot i mean bang it right back 
And the reason you do that is that if you don't, the relaxing compounds will stick to the bottom of the cup and you won't get the effect. So you want to put that in right away and just throw it back. You'll have the kava experience. And if you do that, and then you want more, you wait 20 or 25 minutes. You don't do shots or shells of kava back to back. If you have the opportunity to go to Vanuatu, South Pacific, then you can drink real fresh kava and kava bars, but most people can't do that. So I would say Gaia and Herb Farm are excellent ways to go. Mm -hmm. And if just for anxiety um, or sleep, same thing, or are the capsules effective, or are there other forms of consuming it? Yeah, I think that Gaia has some kava capsules as well. Basically, I'm not sure who else does right now. I actually haven't looked at that side of things in a little while. Uh, there are also some concentrated kava pastes out there uh, that you can find that will deliver a good, strong kava experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think for capsules, yeah, I think you can get those through Gaia as well. And if you want to take it every night for sleeping, what do you suggest then? Well, you probably would want unencapsulated kava just so you don't have to deal with the flavor barrier. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, kava is interesting. It does help a lot of people to sleep better. It doesn't help everybody to do so, but it does help a lot of people to get a, a deeper, more, uh, you know, just relaxed rest. Really, it really relaxes your muscles in a big way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I did an episode about microdosing and a lot of episodes about, you know, yep. quote unquote, macro dosing. And then in between is something, you know, I've called mini dosing, but I saw you were writing, you were calling it, I think, medi-dosing, right? But the middling dose. Right. And right, so right, I'm just right, wondering, right, what right. about with kava? Um, and what about if people are trying to treat anxiety? Uh, what's your recommendation about that? Well, here's what we know. In kava, there's a group of compounds called the kava lactones. And if you look at a standardized kava extract, whether it's in a capsule or a fluid, it will give the, the kava lactone value, okay? Um, all of the human studies are done in increments of 70 milligrams of kava lactone so and generally the studies that show the best anti-anxiety effects are three or four times that per day um so let's say 210 to 280 milligrams of kava lactones a day that is sufficient enough to significantly quell mild to moderate anxiety. It won't do anything for extreme anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, just like we don't have anything for extreme depression other than, you know, heavy duty tripping under supervised conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. You know, you look for an encapsulated kava product that, let's say, per capsule delivers 70 milligrams of kava lactones per capsule and you do three or four of those a day and that'll put you in the, the clinically verified zone for helping to manage mild to moderate anxiety i see and is it correct to say people do not build up tolerance to uh kava in the way they do to some other drugs well I mean, I never have uh mm -hmm. I, but i you know i'm I can't be a clinical study of one i mean mm -hmm. I think if you drink kava in large quantities every single evening, the way they do in the islands, um, at the very least, you build up a little bit of a tolerance. But in terms of people managing mild to moderate anxiety, we haven't seen that in any of the studies. And what about combining it with alcohol or cannabis or CBD? Or do we know anything about the drug interactions? Yeah, I'm not a friend of combining kava with alcohol. I think that kava accentuates the alcohol and the and the alcohol accentuates the kava in weird ways. Uh, I don't think it's a good combination. Kava and cannabis, that's these days very common. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the kava adds extra relaxing dimension to the cannabis and the cannabis gives an extra lift to the kava. That's the way I would describe it. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it can only grow in this part of the world, or could it grow in many other places? Well, kava needs to be in an, in an equatorial tropical environment, and it favors uh, very easy to drain volcanic soil. Um, so, for example, in Vanuatu, where all of those islands are volcanic, every last one of them, uh, the soil is really ideal. And you have similar things in Samoa and Tonga uh, and other parts of the Pacific Islands where those islands themselves are volcanic. And so the soil is right. You know, uh, kava grown in, in Hawaii, for example, uh, which I have a long involvement with, it's very, very good. Uh, mm -hmm. And that owes to the soil. But, you know, if you were to try it, like, say, to grow it at, you know, UC Davis or something where they have, you know, phenomenal agricultural geniuses, you couldn't. You just couldn't do it. And Vanuatu, um, how is this business working out for them now? Are they making more and more money? I mean, obviously, COVID, you know, the first, the, uh, you know, the liver disease thing and then COVID, you know, were obviously major knocks and typhoons as well. But are they doing better right. and better in this area? And is it having a generally positive impact on people? people in the islands, or is it bringing some unwanted yes. things as well? Well, uh, look, the, the, steady, the steady onslaught of multicultural influences from all over the world on any place uh, is disorienting for people no matter where they are. But I will say that in Vanuatu, the wonderful thing that has happened with the kava trade is that the the kava growers and the kava shippers are making far, far more money than they ever did. And that means that, you know, more of them can afford boats, uh, their kids are dressed better, they have things they need like, you know, cooking pots and washing basins and stuff that we take completely for granted and newer bush knives and stuff like that. And it has really, uh, frankly, transformed their lives in very positive ways, you know, from a, an access to goods and services ways, uh, they're doing better now. And, you know, it's, it's in that sense, it's what my friends and I hoped for in the beginning. You know, wouldn't it be great if these people could have, you know, take this tradition of theirs, uh, you know, and earn a living and be less at the mercy of forces all around them because they have some economic stability and power. And thankfully, that's exactly what has happened. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody in Vanuatu or in the Pacific Islands is in the kava trade. So not everybody um, is equally benefiting from that. But that's true all over the world, no matter what trade you're talking about. So in the case of uh, Vanuatu kava, it's been a big success. And you're right that COVID and other things over time have harmed it. But the overall condition of the trade and of the growers and of the kava bars and all of that, it's gone way, way up in very gratifying ways. And there's not yet any problems of over-harvesting or endangering access, the ability of locals to get quality kava. There's the market would have to grow much more substantially before that was a concern. There is so much kava in the ground, <laughs> it's unimaginable. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're really talking many hundreds of thousands of tons, mm -hmm. um, you know, that... Because what happens, Ethan, you pull a kava bush, okay? And so you're after the root and the lateral roots. But you pull up this bush and it has maybe 35 stalks. Not one, 35. And you cut each stalk at an angle and you stab it into the ground and that grows a kava plant. So mm -hmm. at a certain point, you can't even grow anymore. You know, because over hill and dale, as far as you can see, under every tree and, and further and further and further and further, it's kava. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, there is no concern about it being uh, endangered, no concern about it being over-harvested, uh, no concern at all about any of that. So your prediction is that this is going to be a slow growth in the U.S. and around the rest of the world as more and more people appreciate it, but ultimately inherently limited because of the smell and taste issues? 
We, yeah, I think so. But also think about it this way. I mean, let's say that we have all kinds of uh, foods in our kitchen, right? You know, we have things that we eat every day. We have things on occasion. We have things that we eat every once in a while. Um, all of these plants, whether you're talking kratom, whether you're talking salvia divinorum, whether you're talking kava, they're all part of this vast buffet of psychoactive plants. And some are just naturally more appealing to people than others and something that they want to turn to more often than they do with others. That's just the way it is with plants, with uh, different items of clothing, with foods, with music. It's no different. Um, Kava, you know, it'll never be as big as alcohol. Kava will probably hold its sort of moderate place in society and maybe we'll see the european bands eventually go away because they're foolhardy foolhardy and based on non-reality um but i don't think it's going to be huge huge i think it's just part of the psychoactive buffet just as you know i used to direct my students in class to go to this particular place that made hot chocolate And I would say to them, I don't care what hot chocolate you've had in your life. I don't care where you've been. Go to this place, drink a cup of it, come back and tell us about it. And they would all come back and go, whoa, man, I was high for hours on that. And this place just had a particular way of doing it so that it was as concentrated a cocoa elevating experience as you could possibly have. Um, You know, and that's something that people will go back to. Tastes good, really amazing, love the effect, you know, all of that. Uh, People are going to reach for that more than they're going to reach for kava, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, just to finish up here, I mean, you've spent many decades being a quote-unquote medicine hunter, traveling the world, you know, finding, discovering, uh, you know, figuring out whether these things could be brought to broader markets. So what are the other ones in your decades of travel and investigation that you're most excited about and why? And I realize you could go on for hours about this, but if you had to give me the highlights, what would you say? I would say that my involvement with maca, which is a highly nutritious stamina promoting root in the Andes, which I started working on in 98, um, that's been a a very big, deep involvement that I have uh, loved tremendously. And, And the kava market didn't exist before my friends and I got involved, and now kava's everywhere around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, maca, excuse me. Um, Rhodiola rosea, which I've investigated in the uh, central south of Siberia and the Xinjiang region of China, is just remarkable for its overall health and vitality promoting properties. And I've worked with that extensively for years. And that's an involvement I'm very proud of. Um, Ashwagandha, which is also a a vitality enhancing route from India and a key part of the Ayurvedic tradition over there. I work with that to this day. I work with commercial entities uh, with ashwagandha to this day and 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 other uh, things like coffee which i've investigated around the world uh, cocoa or that is cacao the source of mm-hmm. chocolate um and you know amazonian plants i mean i've gone very very far and deep with the ingredients of ayahuasca so both the vine that's used to make it and also the leaf and uh, my peruvian team and i did the only real legitimate survey on ayahuasca that's ever been done took us two years to do it these have been some of the major plants but i you know i've been fortunate to research rosemary and thyme and hawthorn and olive leaf in morocco and um you know, work all over Africa and the Middle East. Uh, you know, in, in Malaysia, I've worked with Tonkat Ali, which is a humongous plant over there that almost nobody over here even knows. And, you know, many Thai plants in Thailand. Um, it, you know, the plants call to me and I get to go work with them. And sometimes I get to make a real and profound difference in the livelihoods and the and the fortunes of other people. And I love that. That's, you know, that's the greatest reward reward I could possibly ask for. 
Well, Chris, on that note, I mean, God, I've loved this conversation with you. I've learned a hell of a lot, and I think our listeners must have as well. So listen, thank you ever so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. Well, thank you, Ethan. You ask great questions, and I've enjoyed the time immensely. I'm, I'm glad we finally connected after sort of kind of like, you know, rubbing auras at different uh, uh -huh. conferences over time. It was nice to make a more of a real connection in New York. And uh, I wish you continued success with this. And to all of your listeners, thanks for tuning in. Okay. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Dr. Gabor Mate, the Hungarian-Canadian physician from Vancouver, who's influenced millions of people with his writing about addiction, trauma, pain, and the power of healing. I've always argued that addictions are rooted in trauma. And the reason the book is subtitled Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture is because the very conditions of life in modern-day globalized corporate capitalist society actually traumatize people. Um, they hurt people, they wound people, and that diseases of mind and body in this environment are not abnormal. They're normal responses to what is an abnormal culture. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.